Hi, good evening. My name is John, and I'm an alcoholic. That's like Craig for asking me to drive where the hell I am on that. Halfway here, I started getting word that I didn't have my passport on me. My goodness. I was expecting a larger meeting, but I guess I'll run. Um, this is great. This is great. I love being in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, wherever it is, however many people are there. Um, just uh, so that you know, I do belong here, and uh, that I don't just play an alcoholic on television. But, uh, there's a reason for me to be here. Um, I am um, sober just uh, shy of uh, 14 years, and in that time, I have, um, I have learned some things about myself that have allowed me to stay sober. I've also learned some things about you that have allowed me to stay sober. <laughs> I think the former is more important, but I'm, I'm never quite sure these days. A um, uh, quick backstory: I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, to a poor black family. <laughs> Somebody else's story, I think. <laughs> The New Orleans part is true. The only child is true. I was very Catholic. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. He left when I was two years old. I didn't know him at all. He died in 1976 of the disease. I had never had a chance to talk to him about it. Uh, I wish I had. I had decided to go and visit him, but I think I got drunk that weekend and didn't. Um, and uh, he died. I had a lot of relatives die of alcoholism, though in New Orleans the definition of alcoholism is very thin and very narrow. Uh, most of my relatives died of falling down the stairs or uh, being hit by a milk truck, or he had a weak heart, you know. Yeah, we're going to a gallon of wine every day. Um, and being very Catholic, uh, I was um, I was always very afraid. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, the Catholic Church was not nearly as um, uh, as Aquarian age as it is today. It seems um, it convinced me that uh, that I was born uh, worthless. I came here with two strikes against me. Uh, and the only way that I could uh, survive was to admit that uh, I was not worth anything and move towards some sort of reconciliation with God and the church. And um, at some point I might be worthy. Well, I took that very seriously. I, I really felt as though I was not uh, very worthwhile. I'm sure if, I, if, if Sigmund Freud were around and I were on his couch long enough, I would uh, be able to tell you that it was because my father left, uh, yada, yada, yada. My mother was too protective, yada, yada, yada. Well, it doesn't matter why. You know, that's the one thing I have learned. It doesn't at all matter why, because the solution is the same, regardless of the uh, conditions. Uh, I, I first got loaded uh, when I was, um, seriously loaded when I was 18 years old. Uh, I was in a rock and roll band, and um, we were in a place called Biloxi, Mississippi, and it was in the height of the Vietnam War, and we picked up some sailors who were getting shipped off to Nam a few days, and so we uh, got a bunch of booze. I think we actually robbed the liquor store uh, to get it. Uh, not really robbed. That's, it, it, that sounds too dramatic. I mean, it's not like uh, you know, Woody Harrelson and Apple Boy Phillies or anything. But, um, there was some old lady who was head of the, uh, uh, and she couldn't see anything anyway. So, uh, and when she turned her head, I just grabbed whatever bottles I could. I didn't know anything about booze, although it was always around my house, and being from New Orleans, Louisiana, it's uh, the only time in the world where the signs on the bar say happy hour, any waking moment. Uh, <laughs> we grabbed what we could, 
and uh, and went to the back of this club where my band was playing, and um, and we had a very very um, esoteric collection, uh, eclectic collection of uh, alcohol, everything from schnapps to Southern Comfort. Uh, I had a t- I had a tendency to go for the thicker ones for some reason; they were more like dessert to me. So everybody sort of sampled. Uh, there were like eight of us uh, in this band, and these two sailors. And um, everybody sort of sampled from the bottles and found something they liked and had a few more swigs of it. And, uh, and um, I continued to drink. Uh, I continued to uh, savor the uh, different aromas and textures uh, and palate of the uh, of the different goods. <laughs> Until about a half hour later, I just uh, there was this huge technicolor yawn all over the seat of the cell. I don't know if you guys know what a Puscafe is, but it's a drink that has different colored layers of liqueur. Well, that's what my car seat looked like. <laughs> um, and I, so the moment I started drinking, I drank alcoholically. There was never enough. Um, somewhere in my personality, I have the psychology that if something is good, then more of it must be better. It seems very logical and very simple. Uh, equation. I, I could never understand why someone would go out and uh, and have a drink or two drinks. Like my wife can. My wife gets it alcoholic beverage. I don't understand that philosophy. Um, to me, it's medicine, and the more medicine you take, the better, right? Uh, whether it's booze or or later in the 80s when I couldn't afford that Nyquil. Um, <laughs> Long before I, I started drinking, and I know that's now only in, in retrospect, I, I, I was born an alcoholic. I had the personality defects that uh, every good alcoholic should have, an extreme uh, lack of self-esteem, uh, coupled with this grandiose self-image. Uh, the two did not cohabitate well. <laughs> and they produced a phenomenally erratic behavior. Um, <laughs> I was very afraid of you uh, because it was logical that if I didn't know who I was and didn't like me very much, how could you possibly? Uh, and so uh, in the 60s, luckily, the Beatles came along and I was able to adopt personalities that were more in vogue at the time. Um, I mean, I was nuts before I ever drank. Uh, there are people in this world to this day that, uh, that had relationships with me for months on end as a, as a totally different person, different name, from a different country. Um, I don't doubt that there's some 50-year-old woman out there uh, sitting at home uh, looking at television and thinking, Jesus Christ, he looks like that English guy I met in the 60s. <laughs> but it was so wonderful to be able to concoct a life that I figured was successful. It was so easy to pretend I was somebody else so that I could put in place the personality traits and the emotions uh, that I thought was made up a whole healthy human being. Uh, and I was very good at it. Um, and then in the early 70s, I heard there was actually a place where you could go where they paid you to do that. Um, I was, I, 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 there was nothing else I could be but an actor. You know, I lied too well not to be. Um, <laughs> I don't lie as much anymore, by the way, except when I get paid these days. Um, so Catholicism and uh, fear and all of that stuff drove me most of my life. I mean, I was, I was, I was such a coward. I had, I had such fear that at any moment, either God 
or um, the authoritarian figure of whoever happened to be in front of me was going to um, eradicate my existence under this constant low-grade fear. <clears throat> Clancy talks about that where you wake up every morning and you just know that the day is probably not going to wind up being very nice, that something's going to happen to you to verify the opinion you have of yourself. I can only say that I am very glad that I found alcohol when I did, uh, because I do believe that alcohol prevented me from going completely psychotic. Uh, I do believe that uh, it, when you're unconscious, it's hard to be nuts. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm sure I've been talking to my dog, uh, and he would have been telling me uh, who to go kill if I had not had something <laughs> that would tur turn it off, you know, that would turn me off. Um, and fortunately, I was a child of the 60s. Uh, consequently, I had the opportunity to uh, blaze trails into chemicals that um, uh, I felt like, uh, you know, um, uh, Captain Kirk. I was going where no man had gone before. <laughs> and I was, uh, I was blazing, and I was um, um, in absolutely off the edge from the moment. Now, you know, I didn't get arrested uh, very much. I didn't, uh, I didn't rob people, except if you had better dope than I. I didn't. <laughs> Uh, but I certainly stole people's lives in a way. You know, I was once described by a girlfriend as a psychic vampire. Um, and I would sort of just suck out of you everything worthwhile and then leave you hollow and starving on the ground. As I, as I found another host. It's terrible, but it's true. Um, You know, I'll tell you how insane I was. Not that you don't probably already know that. When I was in fourth grade, I was 10 years old, I lost a book, a catechism book. And um, the nun, whose name escapes me, but in my mind she has become Sister Mary Rhino for some reason. <laughs> I knew that I could not go back to her class without this book, otherwise my ass would be grass. So I thought, what can I do? Well, logically, I thought, well, I'll run away. And so I looked at some friends, I was on the playground with them, and I said, I'm going over to the convent for a music lesson. And I walked off the schoolyard, and I walked past the convent, and I kept walking. And I was, was 10 years old, uh, in the heart of New Orleans, very close to the Mississippi River. The levee runs right back of the school. So I got on top of the levee, and I started walking downriver toward um, No Man's Land, Chalmette and St. Bernard, weird places where you go get oysters and fireworks, and that's the only reason to be there. Um, and I was there all day. And about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I hadn't eaten, I was scared, um, and I thought, well, I guess I have, what do I have to do now? Well, I can't go back and tell the truth, uh, which never even occurred to me as an option. I mean, it wasn't even like I had that thought. <laughs> it wasn't truth or, it was which lie. <clears throat> and actually being unwilling to take any responsibility whatsoever for my actions, I devised a plan. Uh, so I tore my clothes a bit, uh, my little Catholic uniform, um, and I scraped my knuckles on the sidewalk, and <clears throat> I started going back toward the school. And about two blocks from the school, I assumed this sort of Quasimodo pose. <laughs> so I limped back to the school, and the nuns come, you know, floating out of the building toward me. And I've written nine inventories on the Catholic Church, and I've got such a long way to go yet. Um, <laughs> Anyway, they swooped me up and uh, brought me into the school and said, what happened? 
And uh, being faced with this dilemma, I, 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 I fessed up that I had uh, been kidnapped. <laughs> that a man had found me outside the convent just before I, I got in, threw me in the back of his uh, truck, and uh, took me away, and, um, and kept me all day. Uh, and uh, I didn't know anything about sex at the time, so it didn't even occur to me that, uh, you know, he had touched me in that special place or anything. I wasn't even, <laughs> I didn't even go that far with the story. <laughs> And what little imagination I had at the time when they asked what, what he made me do, he said, I, I, all I could think of was he made me listen to the radio. <laughs> so my mother was called, and my grandfather, who we lived with, and my, my, my old man left, uh, we moved in with my grandmother and grandfather, sensibly raised by my grandmother. My mother worked. So anyway, she comes uh, 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 screaming and crying and uh, delirious. Everybody's been looking for me until they... They take me home and she gives me ice cream and uh, puts me in bed and um, I think, yeah. uh, Well, at 6 o'clock there was a knock on the door and there were two men standing at the door and it was the police. And so the police came in and we, um, they, they sat me down and said, so we hear something really terrible happened to you today. Would you tell us about it? Well, it was a little too early to drop the story, it seemed to me, so... Um, <laughs> I proceeded to enlighten them on my, my predicament that day, uh, and boy, I did it somewhat, um, and gave a description of a guy who really sort of looked like there was some welds, because I think the, the, the third man had come out about that time, so that's the image I had in my mind of, um, of, of Harry Lyme. Uh, and um, they, they, they nodded, and they, they, they gave a lot of sympathy. <clears throat> they went away, and I thought, well, that's all right, you know, I, I, my cover, I got a cover story. And about three days later, they came back and said they had caught him. <laughs> and to show you how a good alcoholic is, I really thought from a wait a minute, did I get kidnapped? <laughs> so now I've got I I've got a real dilemma here. Do I fess up to losing a seventy five cent book or do I send this bastard to jail for thirty years? <laughs> I think it's a, I mean, it, it, the scales were almost even, I think, <laughs> a little while. Uh, but I didn't. I, I, I finally, in a, in a heap of tears and, um, and gnashing of teeth, I confessed uh, what had happened, and um, it, everybody knew. You know, that's another thing that's great about us. We think we have this phenomenal facade that we are streaming through the universe and nobody can touch us. And everybody knew from the, from the get-go what had happened. These guys weren't cops, they were from school. <laughs> they were very loud. I think they were drunks too, because they went pretty far with the story. So. <laughs> but that sort of incident is how I lived my life. Faced with the uh, possibility of, of admitting to you that I was a liar and a thief and a hollow individual, I would far rather concoct the most absurd reality to try and get any responsibility deflected away from me for my own actions. And it went on and on like that. And I, I mean, I, I did that to school. I did that to the United States Navy. You know, I mean, I did that to, to the United States government, for God's sake. And we won't get into that. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> and I'm not sure if the statute of limitations have uh, expired. <laughs> so through the 60s, I, uh, I, I drank a lot and uh, did a lot of drugs. Moved to Colorado. Uh, for a spiritual reason, the guy that uh, used to make my LSD live there. Um, 
And I pride myself on taking the purest stuff, you understand. I mean, it had to be LSD 25 or nothing for me. I convinced myself once toward the end of my drinking that I didn't have a drinking problem because I only had like $5 on me. I went into a liquor store and in front of me were these, you know, vats of Gallo uh, Mountain Thorn wine or uh, a half pint of Courvoisier Cognac. Why chose the Courvoisier? So I figured if you go for quality, not quantity, you really can't have a problem. I moved to California in 1973 to pursue an acting career and was successful rather quickly as far as, far as uh, that goes considering the amount of unemployment in my business. Um, I received roles in television, etc. Uh, I married a woman in 1974. Um, um, and things started going along well as far as my career was concerned. My son was born, my first son was born in 1977. Uh, at that time I had a series, a regular job on my first series called uh, Baba Black Sheep and we were you know, we were supposed to be braggarts and, uh, and baldy balls and uh, misfits. And uh, so we, we lived the parts off screen as well as on screen. And things started going downhill then. Things started changing. Things changed because for the first time that I really can recall, getting loaded became more important than anything else. That my life had to be designed around the possibility of where we're going to get screwed up tonight and with what. Um, when my son was a, was a uh, 10 months old, I sent my wife and he and my, my, my adopted daughter um, to England. My wife is English. I sent them to England because I thought it would be better if we lived alone, uh, separately. Uh, financially, it would be easier. I just wanted to be able to drink without guilt. And I moved on to a friend's sailboat. And uh, basically, I, I, I laid down for three months. Uh, I was too big to stand in the boat. Um, and by this time I discovered heroin. Um, I described heroin as like being dead but still able to dance. Um, and um, I wasn't working. I was living off of residuals and unemployment, etc. Um, and um, I took a ride down to the blood bank for the first time in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, some very large uh, uh, black fellow grabbed me and brought me in because if you, if you get an extra two bucks if you're on the buddy system, if you brought a friend, they <laughs> gave you an extra two bucks. And I'm lying on this on this table having my, the precious bodily fluids, uh, my precious bodily fluids uh, drained out of me for $12. And I look over at the television. There's a little, little black and white television next to the bed, and I see myself on the television. And I thought, you know, yeah, this is really wacky. Um, <laughs> And I remember saying at the time to myself, if you don't die, this is going to be a really great story on the Johnny Carson show one day. Um, and it was, actually. Um, so I got a job, and I got enough money to bring my family back from England and uh, stuff them into a small little apartment in North Hollywood somewhere. It was, it was horrible. Um, and it, it just got worse and worse and worse. I, mean, I wasn't abusive. I didn't beat my children or, or any of that stuff. I, I disappeared. You know, I was the kind of drunk that would just want to be left alone, and so I would go away. I would get on a plane and leave. I would get into a bus and leave. Would, any place that was away from anybody I knew where I could, with some immunity, uh, impunity not uh, be noticed as to what a slob I had become. I was 240 pounds at the time, and uh, um, I looked like my face was just like stuffed with doorknobs. Um, <laughs> in 1980, I got a job in a film called Stripes, and we went to Kentucky to do this film. John Candy and I shared a, uh, a motorhome, and during the time we were there, John Lennon was killed. 
and uh, we got an Irish wig for about a month. Um, um, I can watch that film today and literally not remember doing some of the scenes. Uh, and this was toward the end. It just got so bad. And I really kind of, you know, in some ways appreciate the fact that uh, Mr. Lennon was shot because it put me so far over the edge. And I went to a place I had never gone before. I went to a place of being alone in a room. And I'm not going to get graphic, but it was pretty base. Pretty base what I was doing to myself in order to try and feel something other than this cold, vomit-smelling life I had created for myself. In May of 1981, I checked myself into a hospital just to escape, just to hide. I, I didn't know anything about alcoholism. You know, it was never mentioned when I was a kid growing up. Dylan Thomas was once asked when he was a boy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, I want to be the drunkest man in the world. Uh, and that was my goal. I thought all of my defects were pluses for my artistry. I thought that I alone in the world had the pioneer spirit of being out there on the edge to show you dull bastards what life could really be like. <laughs> You're afraid to walk through the fire? Well, goddammit, I'm not. Come on, let's go. <laughs> when I walked into this hospital, um, on the bed stand uh, next to me uh, was this, uh, this book, this blue book thing that uh, you guys, I guess, are familiar with. And I stayed up that night and read that book. And I put the book down and I thought, oh my God, that's the problem. I'm an alcoholic. So I left the hospital. <laughs> I realize now that I know what the problem is, I can drink in peace. There won't be that nagging, why are you doing this? You're an alcoholic. Thank you. <laughs> that went on for about uh, seven months, and in uh, February of uh, 1982, I got sober um, for, the, uh, for the first time and really only time. I didn't go in and out a lot. Uh, you know, I, I just I couldn't imagine going back out there. Uh, I wasn't happy about being here, but I didn't want to go back out there again. You know, in those days, it was mandatory that you smoke in a meeting. Uh, and so I'd be sitting in these rooms in, in basements of churches in Glendale, and, and you know, places I'd only read about in John Fonte novels and Raymond Chandler novels. That I know we know existed in all of these old men with these long coats where you could, you know, you, they're, they're, you couldn't tell the difference between their ankles and their feet. They were so swollen. Um, and I thought, gee, what has happened to me? What? This is it? Luckily, I was in one of those church basements, and um, a man stood up, an actor whose work I've admired all my life, and told his story. It was so, he was sober about six years then. And I'm sure as many of us have had this experience, my life fell out of this man's mouth. Uh, my uh, my spine sharpened. It was uh, the most amazing experience I've ever had. And I realized, you know what, I'm no different than anybody in this room. I'm exactly the same as every single person in this room, whether you were a woman or a man or you weighed 300 pounds or you were 90 years old. We all had something so intrinsically in common. The thing that I'd look for all my life is the rest of the lepers. Where are the other lepers? And I found them. <laughs> and being the um, extreme individual I am, I got so active so fast that uh, it's amazing I didn't get loaded. Um, um, as I said, being, you know, being Catholic, I have very heavy atheistic tendencies. Um, <laughs> 
And the only thing I thought that would stop me from staying here was this word on every wall I walked into, you know, in, in every room I walked into, this three-letter word. Uh, and I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know how I can stay here if I have to accept the fact that only this God thing can keep me sober. And I thought, you know, that doesn't seem fair. Um, and uh, luckily the second step really saved my life because in it, it doesn't say God. You know, it just says a higher power, a power greater than myself. And I, at that point, even as, as what the enormously bloated ego I had, um, I could accept the fact that in the universe, somewhere, there must be a power greater than myself. Um, and I don't mean that facetiously, you know. I mean, I, I read a lot of Ayn Rand growing up. Um, I could walk up to the beach, though, and I could stand on the beach, and I could tell those waves to stop all day long, and they won't. They'll just keep doing their thing. The planet is a stronger power, you know, a higher power than myself. And um, I, I, found that I found a sponsor very quickly, and I, and I chose an atheist, um, a Jewish atheist, which is um, <laughs> as far removed from my upbringing as I possibly can. Uh, yet, I, you know, I didn't meet a Jew until I was 19 years old. I didn't know what it was. Uh, um, being very Catholic, that was the only thing that existed in the South, and there was not very much else, uh, except Democrat. Um, and so I chose this uh, this Jewish atheist, and I said, you know, I don't know if I can stay here if I have to believe in God. And he said, fine, go get drunk. Um, I said, well, well no, wait, hold on, there's got to be a compromise here somewhere. And so on a piece of paper, he wrote these words. God as I understand, God is. And he put an ellipsis behind it, three dots. And he said, go home and finish the sentence. And so I went back to my little apartment and um, stared at this piece of paper for days on end. God as I understand, God is. And I just, you know, the grandiose thoughts of every, every Alan Watts novel I'd had, every Alan Watts book I'd ever read, Baba Ram Dass, Krishnamurti, I mean, all of those guys that, that, I, that I really craved as a young man to try to find the answer to myself find that part of me that was connected to somehow some divinity somewhere I know I had to be connected so I finally finished the sentence one day and I brought it back to him and it was folded and I handed it to him I said here I finished the sentence and he took it and he tore it up he said fine now pray for it <laughs> he didn't care what it was it doesn't matter what it is as long as you know it's not you and that's the only thing I've known. You know, I got really, as I said, very active. I was a zealot. I mean, I was an obnoxious bastard about it. Uh, you know, I mean, I would, I would walk into bars with a big book and uh, <laughs> find some, some likely candidate, you know, sitting at the bar like I would. I put the book down there. Hey, how you doing? Good to see Luckily, luckily, a lot of that behavior waned in me as I became um, willing to realize that um, that unless you ask for it, I'm not going to give you the message. Uh, it doesn't do us any good to do that. And also that I only had to carry the message and not the drunk. I mean, I literally took guys from the parking lot and brought them to my house, and my wife would go, what are you doing with another one of these scabby old men in our house? And I would shower them. My son at that point was um, five or six years old. Uh, and I would take him with me to Barnesville Park is where I found most of my likely candidates in Vermont and Hollywood uh, where there was a huge Frank Lloyd Wright house at the top of the hill and all these bums there's this whole city that lives on the perimeter of this hillside overlooking Vermont 
and I would go down there and find a, uh, a candidate and uh, take him to a meeting, and, and none of them stayed sober. Uh, most of them died. Um, but that didn't matter. Some of them stayed sober for a little while. Um, I had guys that would actually uh, drink their mother's perfume and stuff when they, uh, when they couldn't find any booze. And I thought, yeah, I never thought of that. I used to have a lot of perfume. And, um, <laughs> I once, um, you know, the idea of humility is a, is a real strong notion with me these days. And I'm still a very grandiose, pompous asshole most of the time. Um, but at least now I recognize that for myself. Before I thought it was an advantage, and now I know it's just me. Um, <laughs> but I realized that in order to achieve some sort of uh, real, permanent spiritual awareness, um, I had to be willing to admit that someone else could teach me something about my own life. You know, and growing up Catholic, there was always people telling you about your life, you know. And actually, there are some priests uh, to, to this day who actually opened me up to a lot of the world, literature and art and music. But to be in one of these rooms and to look at some guy who has nothing in common with you or some woman who has nothing in common with you and admit that that person might be able to teach me something about me, that's my definition of humility, you know. That I'm willing to look at your life and take from it some particle of sanity that I might be able to apply to mine. Uh, it's a remarkable experience. That it's, 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 it's proven to me that we're all very much alike. Um, and I don't, I don't say that with any sort of... Um, um, you know, I, 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 I get tongue-tied when I, when I really try to think about uh, the importance of sobriety in my life. You know, I, I, um, I would be dead, I mean, you know, we've referred to it a lot from this podium, but there's absolutely no doubt about it. I'd be playing handball with John Belushi right now. You know, it's just, I've had a lot of people uh, die on me in the 14 years that I have been sober. I recognize that most people in most meetings will die drunk. There's just no doubt about that. You know, just the statistics show that this is a killer and that many of us will die from it regardless of how long we stay sober. And I've known that it's gone out after 20 years, after 25 years, and never got back. You know, just one day, boom, glass of vino just happened to be in front of them. And the guys that do make it back, I make sure to go right up to them and look them right in the eye and ask them one question. What did you stop doing? What the hell did you, where did you get this in your mind, you know? And almost invariably, it occurs that they stopped going to meetings, that they started isolating in meetings, that they started standing in the back of the room going, there's <laughs> a big bastard up there, I'm glad I'm not that bad. <laughs> God, damn, why don't you go get a drink, buddy? <laughs> separation again, you know. I lived most of my life separate from the rest of you. And once I was connected, and I got connected in these rooms, and I got connected in hospitals and lockups around this country, and the world, you know, I go to meetings on, in, in many countries of the world. I'm fortunate to have a job that actually allows me to travel, to sit in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, England, you know, or, or Paris, France, um, or, or Auckland, New Zealand, and know that somewhere in that town there are lepers. <laughs> that I can walk with a bunch of other people who don't have noses and parts of their faces are falling off, you know, and I'll be right at home. Uh, it, is a, it is a spectacular thing, and it is a simple thing. You know, I used to think that the answer had to be 
incredibly complicated to be worthwhile. I mean, anything that is simple, how could it possibly be worth my investment in it? You know, there's a, there's a bookstore in Los Angeles called The Bodhi Tree, a spiritual bookstore. It was born in the 60s, I guess, uh, when we were all looking for answers of some sort or another, and most of us found them wrapped up and rolled up in little papers. Or <laughs> and I would stand in this bookstore at 10.30 at night and uh, before I got sober and pray that one of these books would just sort of fly off the shelf and hit me in the head. And it would fall open, and there would be the answer. How can I be comfortable being me without the necessity of lying to you or to myself? And i got to tell you, this book, this book is the answer for me. And I think it's the answer for any alcoholic. I'd love to have it spread across the world uh, for people who are, who are not alcoholic. Because there's Henry Miller, great writer, once went to an alcoholic's anonymous meeting in the late 40s. Didn't know what it was, wasn't a drunk himself. One with a friend. And afterwards, he wrote an essay. The essay was called The Hour of Man. And in it, he described this Alcoholics Anonymous meeting he went to. And he was bewildered by the fact that, as we have done tonight, can laugh at the most horrendous disasters in one life, in one's life, that we can actually get some sort of fulfillment out of the fact that we lived uh, hollow, desperate, sickening lives. Um, left people, you know, hordes bleeding and wounded behind us. Um, and so he wrote in this essay that if the world ran like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, we could disband every police force and every army on the planet. And here was a group of people who supposedly had nothing in common other than the fact that they suffered from this malady called alcoholism. And in the time that they are in this room together, what they care about most is staying sober and helping the person next to them stay sober for that evening. I mean, that cuts through all the bullshit. You know, that cuts through any political, any sexual, any racial lines. You know, it is our souls together. Um, it's, a, it's a phenomenal thing. And I saw that there were a lot of, um, a lot of newcomers here tonight. And I know that a lot of this sounds like, uh, you know, when I was new and I was listening to people talk, but had any kind of time, I would just go, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Just <laughs> but it really is um, and, and as simple as this don't get loaded today you know? I don't think that's enough but it's a start you know it talks about the reason I saw this because I think the most important step in this whole bloody thing is uh, number four uh, because I think without that, we're able to um, um, continually bullshit ourselves much longer than we absolutely should. Uh, and I bullshitted myself all my life. And I wanted to be honest with me because I knew that there was no other way for me to live. Um, and uh, when guys would tell me, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you stay sober, I thought, well, that's a pretty good answer. Uh, but I do believe it's more than that. I do believe it's important that we move beyond that. I do believe that is the launching pad for my life. Because unless I'm sober, there's absolutely, I have no choices whatsoever. Uh, but once I stay sober, it talks about the fourth step, and it says if temperamentally we are on the depressive side, we are apt to be swamped with guilt and self-loathing. We wallow in this messy bog, often getting a misshapen and painful pleasure out of it. As we morbidly pursue this melancholy activity, when we sink to such a point of despair that nothing but oblivion looks possible as a solution. Here, of course, we have lost all perspective and therefore all genuine humility. For this is pride in reverse. If, however... Our natural disposition is inclined to self-righteousness or grandiosity. Um, we will be offended 
and AA's suggested inventory. No doubt we shall point with pride to the good lives that we thought we led before the bottle cut us down. We shall claim that our serious character defects, if we think we have any at all, have been caused chiefly by excessive drinking. This being so, we think it logically follows that sobriety, first, last, and all the time, is the only thing we need to work for. We believe that our one-time good characters will be revived the moment we quit alcohol. If we were pretty nice people all along, except for our drinking, what need be there for a moral inventory now that we are sober? Well, it's a real, real important, you know, because I can lie to me easier than I can even lie to you. And I can lie to you pretty damn easily, you know. And if I'm unwilling to really open myself up to myself, you know, and that's, being Catholic, it's easy for me to deal with that part of it because I went to confession all my life. I loved it, actually. Um, he was a person in a room listening only to me. <laughs> and he had to forgive me. <laughs> but if you do nothing else, I think the idea of sitting down and honestly and forthrightly looking at those things, you know, if we all take 30 seconds here and just scan across our lives, I know with me it's, there are these peaks of desolation and despair and embarrassment and anger that just are always there, you know, the big ones, the really large evidence of how, what, 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 what insane lives we led, you know, uh, and all of us had different ones. Several of mine um, include Frank Sinatra, and well, I don't want to get into that, but... <laughs> And when I was willing to sit down and really examine myself and take responsibility, not guilt, but responsibility for everything I had done in my life, then I was able to look at myself in present time and say, no, do you want to continue doing that or not? Because you can. You know, you absolutely can. You know, we've all heard this, I'm sure, the definition of insanity that a, an old man once told me when I was newly sober is the repetition of the same action expecting different results. You know, that's how my drinking life was. You know, today's only going to be two beers at Musa Frank's, and that's it, I promise. Then it's three o'clock, and you go, you know, well, you know what, maybe just one tequila. And that's all. Just a, I don't like the way that beer tastes. And then it'd be four o'clock in the morning, and I was in some fat bastards here in the Hollywood Hills, paying $120 for Italian baby laxatives, you know. <laughs> And I would crawl home at 7 o'clock in the morning and be, uh, be so ashamed to go into the house that I would go into the garage and crawl up at an oil stain somewhere in the corner until my family woke up and they left the house. And my son would be driven to school by his mother. My daughter would go to school and I would crawl into the house and get back into bed and sleep till 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe there's two beers and there's some friends. That's all for it. And I went on for years. It's wonderful to remember. It would be a horrible to repeat. I am married to the same woman today. We've been married for over 20 years. We uh, have more children together. We have an eight-year-old son. She has stayed with me. She's a true alumni. Oh. <laughs> Trust me, if she's ever in a plane crash right before the ground, if the plane hits the ground, somebody else's life will flash before her eyes. <laughs> You know what? 
only next to me she saved my life more than I did. She stayed. You know, she looked at me one day and she says, I understand you'd like to die, but would you just please not do it in front of the children? She's English. She doesn't believe in divorce. Homicide, yes, but not divorce. Uh, the script is part of her. And today we have a spectacular relationship. Uh, I am successful in my business. Uh, I, have, um, I have beaten the odds uh, at many turns in my life. I have, um, but I know enough about me to know that if I think more of anything is the solution to my problem, that's when I get into trouble. More is not the answer. I think really truly for me less is the answer. Uh, in 1985, I was, uh, I was, um, I tell the story a lot, but it is so, it just so points to the alcoholic personality, at least mine. I, um, I won a, 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 an Emmy Award for, uh, for acting, uh, for the show I used to do, and, um, went to the award show that night and nominated, you know, didn't know I'd win, and I, I was feeling great, and I was obviously wanted to. Think if they don't, if they don't give it to me, does that mean I'm a piece of crap? Um, different stuff. I was sober about two and a half years at this point. And they call my name. Right up on the stage. And uh, for the first time in my life, I felt the imposter had left. Now, this was me now. You know, here I was where I belonged. You know, Fifty million people watching me on television. I've got this great gold statue in my hand. I am the best. <laughs> I left the stage. And I walked out of the auditorium with my beautiful wife on my arm, and I got into my beautiful limousine, and I drove to my beautiful house by the Pacific Ocean. I walked in, and I took this statue, and I placed it on my mantelpiece, and I stepped back in my very next part. You know, I need one on the other end just to balance it out. I start thinking like that, I'm unable to really understand the gifts that I have in my life, you know? I mean, I got three more, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> progress, not perfection, okay? <laughs> if you're new to this journey, please don't uh, take anything I say seriously. Find out for yourself. The only thing I know is the experience that I have had in the time that I have been sober. The only story I know is mine and how it applies to my life and how it applies to my daily living in this, in this world of insanity and debauchery and evil and anger and violence. I don't have to participate in any of that. All I have to do is make sure that I understand that I have a daily reprieve from a situation that was not... I did not volunteer for this. You know, I didn't wake up when I was seven years old and say, I want to be an alcoholic when I grow up. I am an alcoholic. I was born an alcoholic. And I have the opportunity on a daily basis not to act like one. And I love that opportunity. And some days it fails. You know, I, I'm in a business where people are paid to satisfy my ego. You know, their jobs depend upon satisfying me. And that's a real dangerous place for an alcoholic to be. You know, because I can get very righteous about it. And I can be very justified in it. And I'll tell you something. That in the time that I have been sober, the number of times 
considering my position that I've walked up to a grip, which is a guy that like pulls cables and stuff on the set, or or a prop man, uh, that something was wrong and I blew up in the moment. To walk up to one of these guys and look at them and say, you know what, I'm, I was really an asshole. And I'm really sorry. Is there something I can do? You know, is there, do you need any time off? Do you, what, what do you need? I just want to. I just want to let you know how badly I felt about that. What a remarkable experience! Well, I don't have to stand behind that righteousness anymore. You know, I can. I can just look at you and admit that I was absolutely and totally wrong. That I neglected to look at you as a fellow human being, regardless of whether you're a drunk or not. You know, because I believe this is a schoolroom and there's life out there. Now I've got to treat those people like I'm willing to treat you. Otherwise, I'm only half alive. I, I really do believe that. So if you're new, please go to meetings. Become aware of your opportunity here. You know, each day is an opportunity to feel better about yourself. And there are a lot of people around here who have been feeling good about themselves for a long time. The book is a miraculous thing. I don't need any of you if I have the book. What's great about having you is that I get to reflect on its truth through your experience, which gives me a whole new dimension, you know. It's like watching five different guys do Hamlet. I see five different interpretations of the great thing. By listening to your lives, I get an opportunity to reflect on mine and realize Black and Richard because there are people in this room who I envy. You know, there are people in this room who I admire. And I don't even know you. You know, the idea that someone can stay so for 20 years <laughs> and not become Clancy. I'm just glad he's not the only all-timer around, I'll tell you that. Uh, I've taken up uh, much of your time. I want to thank Craig again for allowing me to, to come down here and, uh, and share my experience. I, I do love you, and I don't even know you, but I love that part of you that is me that both reflects my disease and my cure. Thanks for letting me share.